This morning I want to take two different sermon topics and combine these two lessons into one sermon. The first sermon is about hell. The second lesson involves Bible authority. If we look at the scriptures, we find that God's word authorizes, it permits, it tells man that we learn how to do things from a biblical standpoint in one, two, or three ways. In some cases, the Bible authorizes. In some cases, the Bible permits us to do certain things by direct statements. Or we might say there are commands in the Scripture that we need to obey. Things like repentance, things like baptism, things like love. There's a whole list of commands or direct statements that authorize us or direct us when it comes to fulfilling God's will. In addition to direct commands or statements, there is also something known as inference. Inference means that we have some information. Maybe they're facts, maybe they are other pieces of information. And from this information, we infer. There's information that implies something, and we infer or we draw conclusions based on the information that we have. An example of inference would be found in Matthew 19, verse 6. Jesus there said, those who marry, they become one flesh. The expression one flesh allows us to infer some things, that is, to draw some conclusions. The expression one flesh allows us to infer that marriage is a very intimate Marriage is a binding relationship. One flesh would also allow us to infer that divorce is not a good thing. In fact, we probably would say from that uh, inference, it's contrary to God's will. And then, in addition to commands or direct, direct statements, in addition to inference, the third way the Bible helps us understand what's right is through Bible examples. As you study Bible examples, you'll often find that they're sometimes joined or associated with a command or a direct statement. Or a Bible command may be associated, or a Bible example may be associated with inference. When we look at Bible examples, we have examples for a lot of things. We have Bible examples when it comes to people becoming Christians. We have Bible examples when it comes to worship, as we heard this morning, the Corinthians, Acts 20, verse 7, and so forth. We follow Bible examples as far as when to meet. The first century church met on the first day of the week, that Sunday. We follow that Bible example. For many years, Hundreds of years, preachers and teachers have spoken about the need to only do what Christ has authorized, Colossians 3, verse 17. We learn what Christ has authorized through Bible examples, inference, and direct statements or commands. And if we bear these three things in mind, they'll help us as we study God's Word. This morning, I want to take these three things, inference, Bible examples, and direct statements or commands, and illustrate them or talk about them by looking at the subject of hell. There are, as we study the subject of hell, some things that we can pick out in the area of example. In fact, Jesus once, in Matthew 13, and this is going to be the first passage that I read from this morning, the first chapter, Jesus gives an example involving hell that's based on farming. In Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24, Jesus talked about a man. A man who was a farmer, and the Lord said this farmer went out and he sowed good seed in his field. While this farmer slept, verse 25, there was an enemy who came along and this enemy did a very bad thing. The Bible says the enemy sowed bad wheat. And Jesus describes this bad wheat as tares. This bad wheat that had been sown as it began to spring up, it was not immediately clear. The farmer and his helpers didn't immediately realize that the bad wheat had been sown because initially the bad wheat looked like the the good wheat. Servants, after the bad wheat was uh, realized that it was in the field, bad wheat, uh, the servant said, can we uh, root that up? Should we take that up? And the farmer said, no, don't do that. Verses 28 and 29. The Lord said the good and the bad, symbolizing good and uh, righteous people and bad and evil people, he said, let them grow. Let them grow until the harvest. Verse 30. 
Well, thankfully, this is a teaching that Jesus went on to explain, and the explanation starts with uh, verse 37, and I'm going to read down through verse 42. And he answered and said, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Verse 38, And the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the devil, the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are angels. As therefore the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling, and them that do iniquity. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Using farming to describe the place called hell tells us several things about hell. This Bible example assists us in many ways. For example, it tells us through this example that as we look at life, there are some people who are on the road to hell. But the people who are on the road to hell, they blend in. Just like the bad wheat blended in with the uh, good wheat, the people who are headed to hell may often seem like everybody else. The good wheat in Jesus' teaching tells us that at least for a time, the righteous and the unrighteous had the very same kind of appearance. You see, the people who are going to hell, they don't wear a name tag. They don't wear a name badge that says, my name is Brad and I'm headed to hell. It doesn't work that way. Some don't even know they're on the path to hell. The Bible also tells us through this example that people will go to hell after the harvest, that is, after the world ends. Those who will experience hell are described sadly and terribly in verse 40 as people who will burn with fire. Bad wheat. Plus the image of burning tells us that we do not want to go to hell. This is a Bible example which says stay away from this place at all costs. Another example involving hell comes from another passage that I'm not going to read from because it should be so familiar to us. You may remember that in Matthew 25, Jesus here pictures the end of time, and he compares, in this situation, people, not to wheat, but he compares them to sheep and goats. He compares the righteous or the the saved to sheep, and he compares the unrighteous, the unsaved, to goats. Those on his left hand, those of course would be the goats, Matthew 25, verse 1, the unsaved. Jesus said these people will be told to depart from it. Jesus also said these people will be classified as the cursed. Those who are compared to goats, Jesus says, will be sent into the place known as the eternal fire. The Lord said this place was prepared for the devil, as well as his angels. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us an example using sheep and goats to tell us that people will go to a good place or a bad place depending on how they chose to live out their lives. We can be like a sheep. The people Jesus pictured on his right hand because we follow the example that's right. Or if we choose to follow the example that's wrong. The example that's lived out by the goats, if you will, in life. We will be among the cursed for eternity. Bible examples typically help us understand what's permissible, what's right, God's will, as well as what's wrong when it comes to living the Christian life. Another example, and again, I'm not going to um, read all of it, but I'll read some of it. This comes from Luke chapter 16. You may have already turned over there if you have your outline sheet. Luke 16, reading verses 24 through 31 in just a moment. But in Luke 16, we read about a sheep, and we also read about a goat. Not a literal sheep, not a literal goat, but using Jesus' analogy from Matthew 25. There was a man who was like a sheep. He was a poor man. He was a beggar. His name was Lazarus. And then in Luke 16, we read about another man, a goat, a rich man whose name is not given. Each of these men went to a place called Hades. A place, the Bible pictures, as holding the uh, departed spirits, the eternal spirits of people that will one day end up in heaven or hell. Hades is not hell, but Hades is that holding place and it has at least two compartments. There's one compartment for the righteous, for the saved, 
And there's another section, there's another compartment for those who are not saved. Some of the information in Luke 16 gives us at least a glimpse into what it's going to be like for the people who enter into hell. In just a moment, I'm going to read the verses I stated, Luke 16, verses 24 through 31. And as I read this information, I'd like you to bear three points. Look for these three points. Number one, we should see from these verses that those who experience punishment in the afterlife, they will not receive the slightest reprieve. There will not be any relief whatsoever for the people who die in an unsafe state. Point number two, when a person dies in an unsafe state, all hope is gone. They will have no hope whatsoever. When they die, and after they've been there for a long time, no second chances. And then point number three, if a person dies in a wrong relationship with God, they lose everything. Every single thing. Luke 16, beginning with verse 24, and going down through uh, the end of the chapter. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, this is that rich man who went to Hades, and he's not on the good side of it. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Why? For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received the good things. And Lazarus in like manner received evil things. But now here he is comforted, and thou art in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great goal fixed, that they that would pass from hence to you may not be able, and that none may cast, uh, pass over from thence to us. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that they may testify unto him, lest they come to this place of torment. This man realized that he had no hope. He realized there was no escape, so he said, please, send a representative to my house. Have this representative tell my five brothers that they do not want to come to this place. It's a place of torment. But Abraham saith, they have Moses and the prophets, and let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one go to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rise from the dead. The Bible example of punishment in the afterlife. And this is just Hades. This is not hell. The Bible example of punishment in the afterlife is terrifying. And the Bible examples about this terrible event does not, do not stop here. You may remember also from uh, towards the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, Satan. The devil is pictured as being cast into a place called hell. In Revelation 20, the Bible there says the devil is going to be tormented. And the text tells us that he's going to be tormented forever and ever. It's going to be a kind of torment that is without end. And every person whose name is not in the book of life, Revelation 20 verse 15, they are promised. If our name is not in that book, and we're accountable for our sins, God guarantees that we've got a spot in hell waiting for us. Bible examples tell us that hell is a place that we do not want to go under any circumstances. Over the years, I've had people tell me that they have a relative who in their mind is probably going to spend eternity in hell. And I've actually had people tell me face to face, well, if my relative is there, I want to go there. You know, that wasn't the attitude of the man in Luke 16. He hadn't made it to hell yet, but he said, I do not want my brethren, I do not want my family members to spend any time in the place I'm in. Surely, not hell. When we have a Bible example, we have information that needs to be carefully considered, carefully studied, because in most cases it's information that we need to apply to our lives. Well, now that we've looked at some things related to Bible examples and the subject of hell, let's turn to a second way, that the Bible helps us understand what to do and what to avoid in life. 
The second way is the uh, summed up by the word inference. Sometimes people will uh, refer to this as necessary inference. Inference, as mentioned earlier, simply means that there's information. And this information, as we look at it, we use it to infer or to draw or to reach certain conclusions. Now, as we think about this, we can again apply it to the subject of hell. You may have gotten here before me, but in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, we have another passage. This one was spoken by Jesus, and it's a verse that speaks about hell. And it's a passage that also allows us to illustrate what inference is. Jesus, in the 12th verse of Matthew 8, said, But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast forth into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Suppose that later today, we choose to go to a place that's dark, a place that's very dark, black, uh, in the greatest degree possible. Some might say, well, it's fun being in this dark place. This place, even though it's dark, offers a lot of great activities, and we really enjoy it here. But you know, not every place that's dark is fun. In Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus, as he talks about hell, he says the people who are there, they're going to be in a state that is so miserable, they weep, they cry, they shed tears. You know, when I think about darkness, and I think about people crying or weeping, terrified in the darkness, the first image that comes to my mind is that of a small child. Maybe we've had the experience sometime in our past. Maybe we've seen a small child. They were in a dark place. And as they were in that dark place, maybe separated from mom and dad, they started to cry. The tears came fast and furious. The child, as they looked at their situation, they felt abandoned. No loved one was within reach. As they called out for mom, as they called out for dad or an aunt or an uncle, whoever it was, nobody answered. In spite of the many tears, the child shed. In spite of the pleas for help, Mom, Dad, where are you? Nobody answered. Nobody showed up. Nobody reached out a hand and said, Here I am. I'll lead you to safety. I'll turn on the light. Being terrified in the dark is an awful thing. But imagine being terrified in the dark and being in a state of gnawing pain. A pain for which there is no medicine. A pain for which there is no pain shot a pain for which there is no surgery, we, as we look at Matthew 8, verse 12, can infer some things about hell. And that is the gnashing of teeth that Jesus describes. Hell is going to be a painful place. An awful place. And then with this passage, in conjunction with Matthew 8, verse 12, we could use Matthew 22, verse 13. If you were to flip over here, you would find that Jesus essentially says the same thing. But in Matthew 22, verse 13, we have an additional detail. Here, as Jesus talks about hell, he refers to people being bound hand and foot in this environment. When we combine Matthew 8, 12 with Matthew 22, verse 13, we infer, we have enough information to draw some conclusions, one of which is the people who go to hell. And it's a sad thing. But the Bible assures us through infants that people will not get out. They will be confined there. They will be somehow restricted there. And they will be in so much pain, they will surely be willing to beg for annihilation. God, just destroy us. Do away with this. Do not let us have any kind of existence. But the Bible tells us that's simply not going to be possible. The pain, though, will be so awful, people will surely be willing to do anything at all for relief. And yet the Bible says there will be none. By example and by inference we see, we conclude that hell is going to be the worst environment that man can possibly experience. Well, this conclusion, or we might say these conclusions, pose a question for us. Who's going to be in hell? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Who, if the hell of the Bible is really this bad, who's going to be there? Could I go to hell? Is that a possibility? 
Could the members of my family, my loved ones, could they go to hell? Could my close friends go to hell? Might my enemies go to hell? Well, when we use inference, we can begin to answer questions like this. Revelation 21, verse 8. Now, that's a passage that may not immediately uh, bring anything to your mind, but that, of course, is the place where John talks about various sins and the people who engage in those sins. Now, if you were to look through the list of sins in Revelation 21, verse 8, you would find that one of the listed sins is lying. And John says in Revelation 21, verse 8, all liars, now think about that, all liars are going to have their place in the lake of fire, the second death, that is hell. Can we infer anything? Can we draw some conclusions from John's statement that all liars are going to spend eternity in hell? Well, yes, we can. Would not all liars include the people who tell giant lies, the whopper lies, if you will? Well, yeah, all liars. So we would say the people who lie in a big way, they tell big stories, big lies. We infer from Revelation 21, verse 8, that they're going to go to hell. Well, what about the people who don't tell the gigantic lies? They just tell small lies. Can we infer from all liars are going to hell? Can we infer from that statement that the people who tell small lies are going to spend eternity in hell? Well, yes, we can. All liars allows us to infer that the people who tell a lot of lies, regardless of the size, are going to be in hell. And all liars going to hell tells us that the people who tell even just a few lies are going to spend eternity in hell. We could also infer that the person who tells just one lie, one lie in their whole lifetime, has done what's necessary to go to hell. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but is there anyone in this assembly who's old enough to know right from wrong that has not lied at least once? Well, if we're over probably about the age of 15, we're probably going to have to say no. Telling just one lie, one lie, even if it seems so small, will reserve a spot on the bus for us that goes to hell. We can infer that from Revelation 21, verse 8. We've got a guaranteed ticket once we sin in this way once. Well, somebody says, well, I've not lied. Well, maybe that's their first lie. Well, say for the sake of argument that a person has never lied. Have they not sinned in some other way? Can we infer that sin has somehow infected them? Well, yes, we can. In Romans 3, verse 10, the Bible says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, if we're a person, then we infer from Romans 3, verse 10, that we have sinned. And then a little later, Romans 3, verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. If we're a person, if we're among that all, in Romans 3, verse 23, then we may infer that we are guilty of sin. If we are accountable for our actions, Romans 3 tells us that we are sinners. And unless we're purged from our sins, whatever they may be, we may infer that we've got a guaranteed spot on that bus going to hell. Since we can infer that hell is a very real threat to us, and we have some Bible examples which tell us that we do not want to go to this place, then the third thing that we want to look at would be some direct statements or commands. How can we relate this third way that the Bible authorizes us to do things, that is, commands and direct statements, to the subject of hell? Here again is a place where Jesus helps us. If you happen to uh, turn over to the book of Matthew, you might make a little adjustment so you can find uh, Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. You may remember that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about hell. And he made a very plain statement. He gives man a direct statement. He gives man a command, if you will, when it comes to hell. Let's look at Matthew 5, uh, fairly early in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 29, and also seeing what he said in verse 30. He said, And if thy right eye 
causeth thee to stumble. Pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body be cast into hell. And, verse 30, if thy right hand causeth thee to stumble and cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body go into hell. Jesus gives a command. He makes a direct statement. He knew what hell is like. So he gave some Bible examples. He knew what hell is like, so he gave some information that we can infer some conclusions when it comes to hell. And now Jesus, in this sermon, which is so famous, he gives the command. He says, you do whatever is necessary to avoid this place. Hell is not a place to mess with. It's not a place to toy with. It's not a place to think, well, I'm probably not going to go there. Jesus says, this is a serious matter. And here's my command. You take whatever steps are necessary in your life. They may be painful. They may be unpleasant. They may be some of the hardest things that you do. But you listen up so you don't go and experience this eternal pain. Now, some people, unfortunately, over the years have taken what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, literally. But common sense tells us that these statements are not to be taken literally. If a man lies, well, we know where he's headed, Revelation 21, verse 8. Is it going to help the liar if he cuts out his tongue? Well, no. I mean, he may not be able to lie with his tongue, but he can still lie in other ways. So cutting out the tongue is not going to help. What about the man who steals? If we cut off his hands, if he says, uh, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to chop off this hand, and I'm going to chop off this hand. Does that cure him of the problem that's taking him to hell? No, it's a heart problem. So getting rid of the tongue, getting rid of the hands, getting rid of the feet, that's not the solution. But Jesus used graphic imagery here to say, do what you need to do to avoid the place called hell. After Jesus gives this command, or this direct statement, he follows it up with another one. Skipping Matthew 6, but turning over to Matthew 7, we have this information in Matthew 7, verse 13, a command or a direct statement. There the Lord said, Enter ye in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are they that enter in thereby. Jesus says there are only two ways to live. And you know, the Bible illustrates that by example. We infer from the illustration of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 and some other places, we infer from that that there are only two choices if we are accountable for our actions. And now Jesus here uses a direct statement. He uses, if you will, a command and says, you need to pursue the narrow gate. We also see this in so many ways by inference. God cannot have sin in his presence. So we infer from that that we either seek forgiveness on God's terms or we will perish. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says so plainly, pursue the narrow gate. And this is what we find elsewhere. The Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 2 verse 2, said that we need to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. This verse commands, it directs people to live in the right way. When it comes to understanding the Bible and applying it to our lives, and that, that's what Christianity is all about, we need to look for these three things on a regular basis. Where do we have Bible examples? How do those examples apply to our life? We, as we look at passages which provide information, how can we infer information from this text? And then, of course, the commands and direct statements are usually pretty easy to understand. Those who respect, who truly respect God's position, God's power, and God's authority will use the Bible in the way described this morning to make sure that their words, their actions, Colossians 3.17, are authorized by God. But the people who do not truly respect God's position, power, and authority We'll often look at inference, examples, commands, and direct statements and say, oh, no, they're not all that important. You don't have to follow them. You can get to heaven without them. But you know when people begin to reject Bible examples? When they don't pay attention to inference? 
And certainly when they reject the direct statements and the commands by God, that's where they enter into a state of some religious error. But God's given these three things. Three different things that all help us understand His will. We, for example, have these things when it comes to becoming a Christian. Belief is commanded, is it not? Well, yeah. And what about repentance? Isn't it commanded? Repent or perish. That sounds like a command to me. Luke 13, verse 3. We have examples of people confessing Christ. And then as we look at the Bible, we also have some information about baptism. It's a command. We may infer, for example, when we think about baptism, that it's to be immersion. Because the Bible says in places like Colossians 2, Romans 6, verse 4, that baptism is a burial. And you can't bury someone or something if you sprinkle or pour water on them. This morning, will we make the commitment to do what God has authorized and only do what He's authorized in the ways described? That's the way to heaven. There are a lot of other ways that Jesus talked about when He referenced the broad ways in Matthew 7. But He said, if we want life, if we want to be among the saved, We've got to take that narrow road, that restricted road, the way that he's authorized. This morning, if we'll make that choice, either to become a Christian by faith and repentance, confessing his name, by being baptized into him, Galatians 3.27, for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 2.38, or making the commitment to more closely follow his revealed will through inference, examples, commands, and direct statements. Let's make that decision now and act on it as we stand and sing the selected song.